A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Friday morning, the 6th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. With just days to go before next year's budget is announced, the Irish Times is reporting today that just five departments have agreed to their spending, spending plans for the next year. The Labour Party is making its proposals to government this week and its alternative budget is coming to us under the title of an Ireland that works for all. Let's speak to the party's spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's with us in studio this morning. And a very good morning to you and thank you morning, indeed Michael. for joining us on the programme today. This is a €6.9 billion Euro package that you're proposing this year. Uh, I see that the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, is said uh, by the Irish Independent to be promising to put €1,000 back I- into the pockets of average earning workers in the budget when the government announces it on Tuesday of next week uh, I take it you won't be following that particular line or wouldn't be if you were in government No because we think it is wrong to introduce the kind of tax cuts for example that uh, Leo Varadkar and Fianna Fáil uh, are talking about uh, that would disproportionately benefit the better off. This is spin uh, the claim that average workers will be €1,000 uh, a, a year better off. Uh, I listened uh, to the news headlines on my way in, the LMFM news headlines, uh, and a, a reporter from the Irish Independent made it clear, well, look, this really is kind of spin, because what Leo Rager's talking about here is repeats, for example, of his very poorly targeted energy credits worth €200 Euro a pop, uh, and if you add then a, a, a couple of uh, adjustments to the uh, income tax system on the USC system, then it could magic itself up to €1,000. But that's not the way we should be looking at this budget uh, at all. We've broken it down essentially into two mm. approaches, Michael. Uh, we have, yes, a €6.9 billion uh, euro package. We are also uh, we also believe in our assessment is that we require a package of about €3 billion euro, uh, over the remaining months of this year and early into next year of immediate measures to help working families and people, for example, who depend on the state for their income. That's why we are proposing, uh, for example, a €250 once-off fuel uh, allowance payment to those in receipt of the fuel allowance in November. We're talking as well of immediate increases Mm. to social welfare rates. And the reason why we're doing that is because of the botched budget last year. Remember, Michael, and people tend to forget this, Mm. 
budget was so botched in terms of supporting those who have the least, those on small incomes, those on modest incomes, that they actually had to go back to the drawing board in February. Yeah. And, and you say in your document, budget. you say in your document that that's how this upcoming budget will be judged yeah. uh, on how those who have least are, are and, and looked after we, by the government. Uh, but well it's cut costs, not taxes. Now we do actually, uh, for the first time in a number of years. Um, because of the um, for two reasons: one, the, the cost of living crisis, but secondly, we we do have record tax receipts, both on I- the income tax side and corporation tax. Mm. We don't believe that windfall corporation tax receipts should be used for day-to-day spending, mm. like tax cuts uh, and so on, because we have to plan our economy in a sustainable way uh, into into the future. Because we know, and we're still learning the lessons, Michael, of the financial crash. The financial crash wasn't just about. Well, uh, we're hearing the same warnings we heard around so two thousand and seven from the. SRI this week. It, uh, we're looking at a contraction, we're looking forward. at a possible recession uh, and we're being told don't blow it, don't exceed the spending limits, but you, like the government parties, like Sinn Féin, everybody seems to be ignoring that uh, advice. You're going way beyond the 5% rule. Uh, we, we are and this is a self-imposed rule by government that they in fact have routinely breached and, and I can understand why Um we have a decade of underinvestment because of the financial crash uh, and uh, the position that the country was in at the time. I think the big issue in this country and one of the main reasons we have the problems we have with poor and patchy and inadequate services, creaking infrastructure, is that lost few years of investment between 2016 and 2020. And we're playing catch up uh, now, quite frankly. Um, So what we want to do is to make sure that the resources we do have are targeted properly. We're talking about cutting costs for families and not taxes. Time and time again, we have seen people being bribed with their own money. Five or a week, uh, every week for a working family uh, isn't as useful for them as free GP care for kids, free second level school books, expansions to the fuel allowance to include more people, uh, child cuts to the cost of childcare. We're talking about capping childcare ultimately at €200 Euro a month for each child. These are the things actually that really matter to people who are in low okay, but and it, middle incomes, the bulk of the country. So, But, but we do... But, we do. But, but, but in drawing up these spending plans, you have to work off uh, assumptions mm-hmm. uh, and you've made uh, an assumption uh, on the overrun in the health service. Uh, but it could be way off the mark uh, because nobody really knows uh, at this stage what that overrun is going to be. Uh, 1.4 billion, possibly 2 billion. I actually have some sympathy for um, the Minister for Health in, in this regard. Um, we, ha- we had said this time last year in preparation for Budget 2023 that the spending package that government were putting together for public services, for education, for uh, health, uh, for uh, social protection, undershot the runway because they didn't take into account rising inflation. That's been an issue in in the health service cost inflation. Also, what they hadn't taken into account was the very rapid increase over the last um, five to six years, especially in the the Irish population. Uh, We have in our budget calculations in terms of the uh, one-off costs that we're talking about between now and the end of the year, included in that the 1.1 billion overrun uh, in health. 
better planning as she would have provided for that. So the chickens are coming home to roost now for government. There's a reason why only a handful of government departments have settled on their spending package for next year, and that's because they're still struggling to deal with the 1.1 billion euro overrun uh, in health, and that's going to affect social protection. It's mm. going to affect any new services that government says they want to introduce, and this is really on them. They were conservative in their analysis last year, and those chickens, unfortunately, are coming home to roost. And who's going to pay for that? Mm. People are on waiting lists. Yep. Children waiting for assessments. Mm. Uh, people waiting for hospital beds. Mm. And so any new but measures it, that they're talking about are actually Isn't, going to be it, isn't very it easy to talk from the sidelines here? I mean, you're talking about increasing welfare by 25 euro. That's great. Everybody will be delighted with that. Uh, but would you actually be able to deliver that if that 1.1 billion rose to 2 billion? Yeah, and actually we factored in next year in our in our um, expenditure plans uh, not just a 1.1 billion overall, but a 1 billion euro increase next year. So we put that 1.1 billion in what they call the base. So that's there. That's going to be done, uh, and we've acknowledged that as well. I just go back, Michael, to an earlier point that I actually failed fail to, to to answer talking about how we've developed these financial plans. We did it actually in cooperation with uh, Dr. Rory O'Farrell, a well-known economist, who actually we commissioned uh, over the summer to uh, detail a paper for us on what the fiscal position is and the amount of expenditure that the economy could take without actually increasing um, inflationary pressure. Because what you don't want to do is spend too much in the wrong places, for example, by introducing tax cuts that might disproportionately benefit the better off, because that actually makes inflation more sticky, and it's actually people who are on low and modest incomes who are worst impacted by inflation. So lots of people in this country, mm. inflation doesn't bother them. They're well enough paid, and they've got the resources and the assets to be able to deal with that. There's lots of people on fixed incomes who just can't. If the price of milk goes up, it affects them. If the price of bread goes up, mm. it affects them. If the price of energy goes up, it affects them. Mm. Rory O'Farrell has made it very clear to us that we could probably spend about an additional €2.3 billion Euro in a targeted way over the next period of time and increase capital spending, which we would do by $1.6 billion to build more houses. Mm. That would not have an inflationary impact on the economy. And we've taken that advice and we've packaged that up and, and that's informed our, 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 our entire package. And that's important because we're a responsible party and nobody actually wants a situation where uh, we have an, ex- an overly expansionary budget that makes the inflation problem we have even more problematic. I asked the uh, Central Bank and uh, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council about this last year. They did say that if government were proceeding, for example, with large tax cuts and large USC cuts, that this could actually add 0.2% to 0.7% to the inflation position next year, which would be really, really bad news for for working families. Talk to me about public transport. You've an interesting proposal. Unlimited public transport for €9 a month. On on a pilot basis for for several months. This was done in Mm. Germany. Um, we believe it's something that's worth trialling here. It would cost about €330 million. It's a €9, Euro, what we call a climate ticket, to get people out of their cars uh, and to cut emissions. Where would they go? Uh, well, we know that there are issues with staffing and rolling mm. stock. Uh, it's something, though, that's radical, that's worth considering. Mm. It's something I think that we can No, but you do. get out of your car, uh, and where do you go? You still have to go to work. Yeah, on the on the bus. On the uh, bus, is the there train. is there a bus? Is there room on the bus? Is there room on the train? Well, we know that there's new rolling stock coming uh, mm. in place. We, we know that's been a criticism of this policy, but I think to be honest, when we've actually used up fifty percent of our carbon budget in two years, the budget that we've got up to twenty thirty, we have to have really radical solutions. And looking at that, Michael, overall the tran- from the transport point of view. Mm. I've been on this program before talking, for example, about school transport. We're talking about reform of the school transport system to create places for mm. 40,000 additional children. That requires, by the way, changes to the rules mm. in terms of how the, tra- the, mm. the, 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 the school transport system operates. But, but with rolling stock 
coming down the line. Uh, new trains, new darts, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but we don't have them now. Uh, it was an interesting issue. We'll hear it later in the programme. Peter Fitzpatrick complaining about people standing all the way from Connolly to Dublin. Uh, if, if you get more from people... Dundalk, yeah. From Dundalk, yeah. From Dundalk, Andrew. Oh, Dublin. sorry, from yeah. Connolly to Dundalk. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you get more people onto those trains, uh, where are you going to put them on the roof like in India or whatever? I mean, there just isn't the capacity. No, I understand that. It is, it is, it is our job, Don. we are a responsible party. It is our job to set out alternatives because what's happening at the moment just simply isn't working we know the issues on the train line uh, I know I take the train myself mm. uh, as often as I can um, given the hours that I work <laughs> in Leicester House it mm. can be different to get a late train when we're coming back but in any case I think it's something that's worth considering and we're trialling we know the issues one of the solutions there is actually to ensure that we pay uh, our Irish Rail and Bus Air and staff properly give them you know, a, a careers uh, in the system um, and we do have to have a radical rethink about public um, transport. We understand that uh, this €9 Euro ticket may in fact be difficult to implement. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but I think it's worth trying. Okay, well it's an interesting uh, idea. It has to be said, as you say, it's not the first time uh, that it's been mentioned and it works quite well uh, in uh, Germany. In Germany, yeah. yeah. Our, yeah. Our, our sister party did Absolutely. it there. Okay. Uh, t- talk to me about childcare. Yeah, ch- look, childcare is the, is the classic um, second mortgage Um it's a huge issue yeah. for working families. You got your go, didn't you? Remember Joan Burton, Scandinavian model of childcare? That didn't happen. No, uh, the exactly. Scandinavian model That's what I mean. You, you, you um, got your go, uh, la- la- Labour. That, that was one of the big failings other, of the Labour Party. Other, other, aspects, other aspects of government didn't, unfortunately, work and respond to that. We're in a very different situation now, Michael. Um, we have full employment. Uh, we have underemployment, in fact, of uh, skilled professional women. Um, it is affecting their career path and career progress and, and, I, and I mean that in the best possible way because the reality is and look at all the assessments uh, a lot of the care duties still fall in this society uh, on women there's grandparents listening to this programme mm. who are uh, just back probably from the school run or looking after very young children if it wasn't for grandparents yeah, yeah. the some, system would I'd collapse gi- I'd give some of the grandparents a half an hour from now to get back from the school uh, run with the traffic surgery. around at the moment um, yeah. but <laughs> I, I think it is important that we have a radical rethink yeah. of, of our child childcare earlier mm. system we have a funding package close to 500 million euro that would actually firstly trial actually universal basic uh, public system that we envisage would ultimately be operated by the education training boards in existing schools and facilities um, what we have as well is uh, more investment in what they call the um, core um, core funding system to make sure that staff skilled professional staff in the sector are paid um, properly and we want to cap childcare fees at 200 euros there's people I know and people I represent who are paying a thousand euros a month mm. in childcare fees and uh, families are having to make very difficult decisions sometimes about who stays in work and who doesn't and that mm. shouldn't be shouldn't be the case okay I could interpret your answer to mean that the reason that you failed to realize your ambition with childcare and a Scandinavian uh, model of childcare in this country was because you were in coalition with Fine Gael. Um, who can you align these proposals with now? Because I think many people would be looking at this upcoming budget as an election budget. Possibly. And, um, you know, this is a classically centre-left social democratic approach to budgeting and investment in public services. There are people in the Social Democrats who would agree with us. There are independent left-leading um, TDs who would agree with us. 
uh, and our assessment, uh, there are some of the Green Party, for example, who would agree with our assessment as well. Interestingly, and I'm taking something that uh, Green Party TD, Nasa Horrigan, uh, outspoken TD, uh, has said uh, a couple of days ago in the media, looking at the Sinn Féin alternative budget, uh, it is a long love letter to Fianna Fáil. That's what it is. Interestingly, Sinn Féin have modified their language on things like wealth taxes. Uh, we had provided, for example, €1.3 billion Euro for a new public sector pay deal mm-hmm. and to deal with the pay challenges that Section 39, 56 and 10 workers have. Very small amount of money allocated for that. Sinn Féin, if anybody thinks they're radical, they're on a very, very quick move to the centre to try and attract middle ground votes. And I'm calling it now, Michael, I believe that the next government will be a Sinn Féin Fianna Fáil mm. government. And Labour Party in opposition. Um, our job is to maximise the number of seats that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we have seven at the moment. We want to grow that. Things are very, very fluid at but the moment. But that is the bottom my line. My job is to make That's sure my that interpretation. Like, like, like the Finnegale, like, like, like I, for, I take it, you, 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 you've ruled out uh, Finnegale. You've been uh, bitten once, uh, and uh, you're not going there again. Uh, you don't seem to have any interest at all in Sinn Fein. Well, I think there's an appetite. Um, you know, Finnegale have been in government for a long, long time now. A long, long time. Uh, and I think there is an appetite for change. I can't predict what the outcome of the next election is going to be. No, I know that. And, 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 what, what, and, and everybody's saying at the moment uh, that numbers are going to dictate what the formulation of the next government mm. is. Everybody I think the doll will be even year, more right? fragmented, mm. though, than ever. Yeah. Uh, looking mm-hmm. at the polls, uh, there's a huge number of people who are undecided. Uh, I don't interpret, for example, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12, 30% people saying they're going to vote independent, that that will be the case mm. come the next election. Uh, the independent spectrum of everything from far-right um, lunatics uh, to people who are on the far left uh, and everything in between. Um, you know, people whose job it is to look after themselves and their own seats, mm-hmm. who have no particular political views. Their job seems to be to get elected and stay elected. Um, and that's a challenge for the political system. Um, and I think it's going to be extremely fragmented. So nobody would be placing any bets on what the outcome of the next election is going to be. Okay, but, going it, to be in but, uh, but, but I, I think if I was a betting man listening to Jed Nash this morning, I think I'd be going, well, da- go- time, I'd be going I, down to the bookies now betting that they'll I, be in opposition. I'm a TD who doesn't, doesn't <laughs> like being in opposition. I like to get things done. But you don't um, seem to have the ambition to go into a government I, with any of the other existing parties. But we, we will see what the outcome of the next election is. I mean, the numbers will dictate. And I think if we, if we thought the last time uh, there were... Um, difficult um, negotiations around the formula- formation of a government uh, and it took a number of months I think it's going to take even longer next time out Alright, listen, thank you indeed for coming into us, hope uh, we can get to talk to you next week and analyse uh, what uh, the government is planning for all of us in the year ahead when the budget is announced on Tuesday, but our thanks uh, this morning to the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash who's a TD for Loud Andy Smith Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones Ahead of next Tuesday's budget this Saturday at one o'clock at Parnell Square uh, trade unionists, pensioners students, people with disability housing activists and many many more Uh, will take to the streets to march uh, to the Dáil. They will be marching uh, because they are being absolutely crucified with the cost of living uh, crisis and the housing and accommodation 
uh, crisis. That's Richard Boyd Barrett of People Before Profit speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday about tomorrow's planned cost of living coalition rally. As he said, it'll take place in Dublin at one o'clock. Let's speak to Susan Shaw, who's uh, the CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament, who will be taking part in uh, this rally. And uh, a very good morning to you, Sue. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Obviously, this is to send a strong message to government ahead of of Tuesday's budget. Good morning, Michael, and to your uh, listeners. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's a reminder um, to our government to say, look, you are in a position which is rare enough in the last few years that they have a surplus and that they can look at how best we can use this to insulate and protect people who are on state transfers, people who are paying mortgages, people who are renting. How can we help them survive this crisis? We have record profits in certain areas and we need them to address this. For pensioners, we are saying we have one in three at risk of poverty. We have one in eight experiencing poverty. That's choices that nobody should have to make. Trying to manage in today's cost of living crisis on 265. And remember, Michael, that's the top rate. Very many people are not on the top rate. They could be on anything as low as 106. We have a lot of our members who are struggling to make ends meet. So we're saying you can't do that. We're asking the government, can you commit to the 34% of average income for the state pension that you agreed, that you recommended? Keep the promise. Really, that's what we are saying, because okay. that would that's 53 extra euro a week that would make a major difference okay. to people. Mm, well, I, I, from, from what we're hearing, there's no hope of 53 euro. It seems as though it's probably going to be 12 euro. I think nobody expects a one-file swoop of 23. So if we government over the next two years, will you implement and make a commitment to implement your your promise that you made as a government. It's, so we're asking them to keep the promise they made over a two-year period. Mm. They could afford, it is within their brief, to split it over the two years. And it's, you know, the mixed message is coming out at the moment around, oh, well, we need to be careful now. The tax take for September wasn't so good. The reality is still, we are looking at a surface, a possible surface of nearly 16 million in the next year. On revenue, so then I really think it's it's not realistic to say that it can't be managed. So we are clearly saying, you committed this figure. We would have asked for mm. more, but there you go. Back in 2010, I think it was um, Mary Hannison uh, at the time, as part of that pension framework, was saying that there was a recommendation of 35 or 36 percent when the ask at that stage had been 50. But realistically, the government themselves committed to the 34%. Okay. So if they would split that 53 over two years, and it is doable for them. And that's why you'll be marching tomorrow. Uh, but if the answer is no, and it seems like it will be no, uh, and that there'll be a 12 euro increase or something in that region, what will that mean for people? Well, if the 12 if the 12 euro is committed to as part of the pension campaign, then next year, the following 12, do you know what I mean? We would, we'd argue back what it'll mean to our members to say a 12 euro. 
the last increase of 12 euro didn't even match the period where they had lost their spending power. The period where we had nothing, and I think we'd have fiver. So the, paying the 12 euro last time just didn't even bring us back to balancing out the loss of income that people had and the loss of spending power. So what it will mean to the government is, I think, the reality is, if I can't heat my home and I'm of, whether I'm a, a, a mother with small children in the house or whether I'm a grandmother mm. in, a, in a home, the reality is there are impacts on my health and well-being. If I cannot eat well, I cannot heat my home properly. So therefore, the long term, the short sightedness of realising you'll pay it out in health, you'll pay it out in kids not doing well at school. So if they benchmark one of the state pay transfers, they will look, they hopefully will look to do the rest. Hmm. So we're saying it'll have a knock on effect for the well-being of people. But not only that, they need to make commitments to people around housing. We have a cohort coming up who are in their 50s who are in rented accommodation. I don't know how they're going to be able to manage those rents, regardless of where you live in the country, on two, six, five a year. How many people? How how many people? And the reason I'm asking you that is because I I imagine, to some extent, that's the question that politicians ask themselves, uh, because uh, this could be an election budget, uh, and the objective here may be to please as many people as possible. Uh, and that's why we're hearing this morning that the average worker is going to have an extra thousand euro in their pockets, which, which would mean that this 12 euro would really pale into comparison uh, in terms of what those who are relying on the state pension will get uh, in relation to what relatively high earners will receive. The reality is our situ our how we operate in this country in terms of between those who have and those who have not has only increased in the last few years. It has gotten worse. There are enough reports that presented to government. I mean, we sat last week with, along with a range of other organisations, with the Venezuelan Party, talking to them about the reality of their decisions and how that impacted on people. We had some the politicians really telling us how much they knew it impacted. So the reality is there's not a lack of awareness of how people are struggling. It's a lack of decision-making. And a catch-all budget, a hope, an election budget, is not what people need. Mm. But People need to realise... What politicians decide is on what measures win votes. Well, then I would remind them that their largest cohort of voters are older people. The reality is, stats have proven and research has shown that for whatever reason, as we age, we vote more. So the biggest percentage you turn out to the polls, by and large, are older people. And I know from talking to our members that they are absolutely destroyed by the reality of a government that doesn't seem to understand how desperate some of the, the some older people are. Like, reality is you have up to um, we can't track that accurately, but good research is saying that up to 70% of older people rely on the state pension. So the reality is that's a heavy cohort of voters if that's what they're looking at as an election budget. But, you know, I'm not sure it's going mm. to serve them well kind of trying to fit everything. Okay. And if the, if the biggest cohort of people, if you're doing the widest attachment and those who have more fare better, you're only going to create something that will come back and bite you. As I say, 
if you think about this pension, they talk about the cost of how much that will be, Michael. But the reality is, when people get their state pension, it tends to go straight back into the economy. Mm-hmm. It, it goes back into paying for heat, electricity, food. But are you optimistic? Are you optimistic you'll get uh, the kinds of increase that will help people through these hard times? Well, we're hoping that they will make the commitment to the 34% over a period. Not not giving an increase of 15 euro or something uh, is, is not going to cut the mustard anymore. The reality is people need security of income. If I want, if you want to plan, Michael, for a holiday, and I'm just about to retire, and will be reliant on the state pension, I can plan based on my income because I know how much it is going to be every week. I don't have to wait on the whim of a politician to say, "Well, you get another this, or you get another that." The reality is, for older people, they need the security, they need the the political footballness of state pension taken out of it. They just need to know, "I will get this every week. It'll be matched to the." the average 34% of the average wage it allows people breathe and they don't there is a major savings to be done here this is just about a quality of life and we're asking politicians to ensure people who have paid in all their working lives are entitled to that okay many thousands of people will meet at one o'clock to uh, make a a similar call on government uh, tomorrow uh, and uh, i'm sure many of our listeners uh, will join with you susan thank you indeed for joining us thank you that's uh, sue shaw ceo of the irish senior citizens parliament now let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning somebody in touch with us uh, about her interview with jed nash of uh, the labor party saying ask jed where will people sit or stand on trains. I see people every day with their heads stuck to the doors of trains after working all day and it's terrible. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Claire and me saying good morning Michael. It's terrible listening these days to all of the money that's being spent on health. The health minister spending his billions on the children's hospital. It's a bottomless pit. All talk all of the time. Our country is sliding away. Too many are pe- people are being loud in uh, and and uh, we have housing estates that are sold to vulture funds and I could go on and on. Well, thank you indeed uh, for your message as well. Claire. if you want to make a comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041 Text or WhatsApp 086 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, let's uh, turn our attention uh, to the death of Private Sean Rooney. Uh, which I'm sure many people will remember, particularly our our listeners in Dundalk, and where the investigation is going into his murder. It's an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday by Sinn Féin's Rory O'Murakou. I'd like to deal with the tragic loss of Private Sean Rooney in Lebanon on the 14th of December uh, 2022. Obviously, his loss will be felt um, by all of us, but particularly those in Donegal and Dundalk uh, for a long time to come. Uh, Look, you've been very clear around the fact that all facts would be uncovered and that all would be done in relation to delivering justice. No stone unturned, I think, is the term that you used. There has been a huge level of engagement with the Lebanese authorities. Obviously, that limits what can be said because there is a judicial system that's in, uh, there's a judicial process in play. Um, But on the 14th of July, uh, there was 
there, there, there was obviously court proceedings. I, I don't think the, the defendants were there. The 30th of August, uh, there was another. I just, I don't have information in relation to uh, whether the defendants uh, were there. And I think there's another to be on I the 15th of December. Uh, look, if we could have information in relation to that, the uh, around the and also I'm the UN up. has carried out a board of inquiry. It's concluded. It's been shared Deputy with Ireland please, for official use up. only, but I'm just wondering, can that be shared with the Defence Forces? Could it be shared with the I family? Could, there has been ongoing engagement with the family on this question. Maybe I could talk to the Deputy to get more clarity in terms of the specific asks. There was, there was a, um, a UN initial inquiry. Um, I understand that then goes to a board inquiry. Well, I'll come back to that, Deputy. Um, and then there's the, the Gardaí is involved in a coroner's um, court um, and uh, so, and I met with the Lebanese Foreign Minister of the UN recently to again underpin the, the importance of justice here in terms of those who killed um, uh, Private Sean Rooney. That's the Tanish to Bihal Martin responding to Rory Omerku. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. So what about these overcrowded trains? This is how it was raised in the Dáil yesterday by Peter Fitzpatrick. Minister, as you know, there's thousands of people that, that commute between Dundalk and uh, Dublin every day. Uh, uh, <coughs> one of my constituents, and one of, the few, one of many of my constituents sent me an email during the week there, and it's subject to 1650 Dundalk, Dublin to Belfast train. He says, this evening for the second time in eight days, I had to stand all the way from Connie Station to Dundalk on a 1650 Enterprise. On each occasion, incoming train arrived late with no expected arrival time advice on these queues to Connie's. There was no checking on tickets and no managing to, 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 to see how many people were going on board. Today, like last Tuesday, the eyes of each cows was absolutely packed with passengers standing all the way to Dundalk. Elderly and pregnant people have been left standing. There isn't even room to sit on the floor. If there was a crash, it would be carnage, as huge numbers of people had, are not secured and would be thrown all around the carriage. And there was no checking of tickets on Irish Rail, and I paid €28.15. Return. I would be grateful if you could explain how Irish Rail are planning to compensate customers affected, and, and either will it ensure that the development of a world transport condition will not continue to be delivered on key routes Thank and a wealthy deputy. country of first world prices. The Minister for Transport is Eamon Ryan. Deputy, I say obviously that's totally unsatisfactory customer experience and no one wants someone standing on the train all the way to Dundalk and all the, the, very, the various inconveniences that you listed. So we need to improve the services and that's why we've purchased the new ICR units. That's why we are built, buying and, and about to introduce the new battery electric trains. Bad on the train, not much better if you're driving. Uh, I done my fair wee bit. I invested in a fully electric car and I'm proud to say that there. But for example, I'm travelling up and down to Leinster Heights for the last 13 years. And I will honestly say this morning was probably the worst. I left in dog at 6 o'clock this morning. It took me 20 minutes to, to get out of the dog. I came to the draw the toll bridge. I was there for maybe another 10 or 15 minutes trying to get through the toll bridge. From Donnerbrake the whole way to Merrion Street this morning, it was unbelievable. And Minnesota, there was no accidents. I would actually love it one says to wind me window down to get some fresh air. I can't do that there. Minister, when you see elderly people and pregnant women and people can't even, you know, can't even stand, stand up the whole time for the dog to double and vice versa. Minister, you, you do talk about investments. You, you do talk about, uh, about these new services coming in. I'd like to know, Minister, when... And like, 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 there's talk now, Minister, that you didn't spend nearly £100 million of your budget recently there in, in, in roads and everything else. So, Minister... I, 
a lot of money is, is, is being talked about and being invested, but Minister, there doesn't seem to be any improvement whatsoever. So I am asking you, Minister, show me where, where these improvements are, because I, I, I have to go back to the dog and explain to these people, elderly people and pregnant people, uh, that standing you. up the whole way from the dog to kind uh, it's, it's, it's a disgraceful. Show Peter Fitzpatrick where the change is coming from, Minister. I'll show you the improvement when we roll out the new carriages next year, the new ICR units, 41 of them. I'll show you improvements the year after when we put in the new battery electric trains. And I'll go further. Next year, we'll also improve that line by building a charging station in Drogheda so that those battery electric trains can turn around and operate much quicker and have higher capacity. So there are improvements on the way. Just to make one point in terms of this is not an anti-motorist or it's not saying, you know, why do we make this switch in prioritisation? Because the truth is that the M50... And the approach roads to it, as we said earlier on, are full and cannot, no additional capacity is possible. So change on the way, uh, but pack trains for the meantime. Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan and Peter Fitzpatrick, TD. Call Michael now, 0419832000. The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, thanks to Dick uh, for phoning us uh, this morning saying he would like everybody to remember the people who died in Creaselock tragedy on the anniversary. A good, nice thought. Thank you indeed for that. Uh, a listener from North Loud says, uh, there's nothing new with people standing uh, on trains from Connolly to Dundalk. This has been going on for years. The politicians are all talk and no action. This situation is only getting worse. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for your call. A WhatsApp message from someone who says, I was just listening to Eamon Ryan on about uh, electric trains. Did he, he not see the accident the other day? Uh, was it in Venice? I just can't remember. It was an electric bus uh, that went over a railing. These people died because uh, it was electric and it burst into flames on impact. I'm sick listening to these people pushing electric vehicles. They're deadly in an accident. Thank you indeed for that message. Not something that I was aware of at all. Uh, Mary in touch with us saying she was listening to Susan Shaw of uh, the Irish Senior Citizens Party. She's so right. People on the state pension pump it back into the economy. We have no housing, healthcare, staff are depleting, guardy are scarce and we are all getting older. We need care. And what do the government do? Uh, Well, they means test a carer's allowance. How would a a carer make an income? Uh, They should bring some of our government representatives into a home where a disabled or any person needing full-time care uh, and attention is and uh, they'd about turn and run back to the doll, says Mary. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Our telephone number is 041 983 Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, as you've been hearing this morning, there is hope on the horizon for a restoration of uh, the political institutions in Northern Ireland. It, it seems like the DUP is very close to doing a, a deal with uh, the British government. It could be even announced over the weekend but this is all part of what is a relatively new peace process and indeed a fragile peace process for that matter. This will all be reflected on tomorrow week in Dalgan Park and let's hear a little bit more about what is going to be a most interesting seminar. It's being organised by the Mead Archaeological and Historical Society in association with the Mead Peace Group and Mead County Library. It's under the title of 50 Years of the Northern Ireland Peace Process 
retrospective and reflections. Yulita Clancy is on the line to tell us more. Good morning to you, Yulita, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about what you've got planned for uh, Saturday week, if you would, please. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for the opportunity. Yes, we have a, a full afternoon of discussion, uh, as you said, looking back on 50 years of the peace process, because so much of that is historical, but it's also live, as you just mentioned as well, the continuing impasse. Um, so we're starting off um, at 1.45, opening of the seminar by the last Cahirlock, Councillor Paul McCabe, and we're, we're going straight into a talk on the, from Sunningdale to the Good Friday Agreement. And that will be given by somebody who was there in the middle of it all, Sean Donlan, who was the former Secretary General of the Department of Foreign Affairs. And throughout the day, we're having a number of people who were very crucial to the negotiations, people you don't hear of mm. very often, civil servants and some retired politicians. And some well-known names as well, it has to be said. Some well-known names indeed, Mm. and some of Mm. them were chosen because they had addressed our peace group in Dalgan Park many years ago, back in the 90s and 2000s, and um, others um, who are more going to be looking forward, um, and that will be the final session, or the the almost final session. But we're also taking, I mean, some of the names that will be there in the discussion on looking back at the, the agreement reflections will be Dermot Nesbitt, who was very close to David Trimble and was a minister in the negotiating team. Breege Rogers, also she was leader of the SDLP negotiating team. Tim O'Connor, who was very crucially involved in the negotiations on behalf of the Irish government and went on to be the, the first Southern Joint Secretary of the North-South Ministerial Council. Lily Kerr, who was a very active trade unionist at the time, is now retired, but has been very involved in um, work in that relationship in, in, in Northern Ireland. And Pat Hines from the Glen Quay Centre, who um, many years ago was also involved with the Fianna Fáil National Executive in talking to people on the ground and attending talks like ours. Mm. And then um, after the tea break, there's Dr Katie Hayward from Queen's University, who is quite an acknowledged expert on Brexit and the aftermath, and Dr Duncan Morrow, who is um, Professor of Politics in the University of Ulster. And we had him speaking many years ago, too, down in Dalgan. And we'll be looking to them to look at what needs to be done now still. Mm. And we're not, you know, we're not kind of, because we're an historical society running this, we don't have any sort of active politicians speaking. It's more looking at academics and retired politicians giving their reflections and um, also hoping for a good input from the audience. Yeah. Well, I imagine to be uh, quite a, an audience. I imagine to be quite an interest uh, in it. Uh, it really is a, a most interesting seminar, as I said at the outset, and a very interesting lineup of speakers taking place tomorrow week. That's the fourteenth of October. It's yes. throughout the afternoon, mention, really. Yes. Yes, the afternoon. It's the whole afternoon. Hmm. And could I mention, um, um, Michael, that while we have an event bright link uh, booking form, because obviously the room can only cater for so many. Um, we do also, if anybody interested would like to inquire, they could email um, our secretary, Tom French, who's in Meath County Library, and that's tfrench at meadcoco.ie. Uh, he's very kindly allowed his email to be used for this um, because there are a number, <coughs> a number of people who don't seem to be able to get access to the Eventbrite link. Okay. 
All right. I was just going to say, Yulita, that uh, one of the more interesting speakers will be Yulita Clancy, yourself, uh, in other words, uh, uh, because uh, you really have taken such a, an interest in uh, affairs north of uh, the border uh, on this island over such a, a long time and have brought so many people together from all sides uh, in what has been a, a terrible recent history. Uh, and it's quite a, amazing the results uh, from all of that and how people end up getting on. Uh, But you really do have a a unique insight into it from uh, that perspective. How do you read the situation at at the moment? Uh, I said there was a a ray of hope uh, with the DUP uh, and this meeting that took place in Lurga. There's quite the possibility uh, that the institutions will be restored. Is that the way you see it? Um, Well, I'd like to share that optimism. I'm, I'm I'm not quite sure. I wouldn't like to jump into it um, um, on that, it is it is obviously extremely difficult, and it's a, it's an impasse that we would all like to see ending. Because I think we can all say, no matter what side we're on, that it is better for Northern Ireland and for 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 all that devolution is restored and that it can work. Um, obviously, it has to work, and we've had a lot of impasses in the in the last number of years. Um, the last one lasted for three years. We would hope that this would not go on. I mean, the DUP have their conference next Saturday, uh, as it happens, just in the morning before our seminar. Um, and we would hope for maybe some better news, but I, 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 I won't minimise the difficulties that they are facing and the outside influences also that are being brought to bear. Um, so I think we can only hope. I, I, I never like to predict things. Um, I like to be optimistic because I think in the end... It's what the people want in Northern Ireland, and um, it's just that if it is restored, every effort will have to be made to make it work and to last, because there's so much that has to be done. There's also reforms needed. Um, But if you look at where we have come from, if you go back to 50 years ago, I mean, I was only starting work when the Sunningdale crashed, and I remember being northern friends ringing me and being so distressed at that time as to what had happened and the lack of hope and then the work that went on behind the scenes and all the work like our group the meet peace group started in early 1993 and we found ourselves just on a learning course helped by so many people in Meath and loud and um, many of the members of the Meath archaeological society joined us at that time as well so there was kind of a crossover between the groups but it was for all of us such a learning, and we held so many talks in Dalian and in schools and programs in schools um, that, you know, it would be good to see more work going on. It can be quite despairing to see the lack of information that some people have about the process, and it's going to involve us more mm. in the future. Um, and, and the, prob- the uh, problems so can be very complicated, can't they? But they can also be very simple. Yeah. And, and pride can be an awful thing and can be an awful obstacle uh, to yeah, uh, and I was just going to mention the idea of a Sinn Féin first minister though and that could be as simple as that is uh, because that's the way the people voted as simple as that is that may be an obstacle that it proves impossible to overcome Yeah I mean you can't minimise that. that that is true and it's it's hard to understand in terms of democracy but, I mean, it's also like there's people down here who also share that because of the associations with violence. And it's really only that, um, that people kind of shudder about sometimes about those things. But I don't think that's the biggest barrier. I, I really don't in relation to the DUP. 
uh, but I don't have any inside knowledge with that. Um, all I know is that we people here, I mean in the South, by engaging with Northerners, by coming along to discussions, and also in the group that we're also going to be discussing next Saturday in Louth, a quiet group, but very important, the Guild of Oriel, which was founded by Roy Garland, who was then an Ulster Unionist member and was one of the few Ulster Unionists who actually appeared at the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation. And he did groundbreaking work in reaching across the divide. And in that group, we've had endless discussions, more private than public as with the peace group. And uh, those have done so much to build trust. And I remember the first DUP guys coming down and opening up and the arguments we had and then them agreeing after the response. And some of them actually came on your show and came Mm. on LMFM and afterwards then agreed to talk publicly in in, in Mead and found that that actually worked for them, that people were listening. So so much can be done by us making an effort to listen. And I think that was part of our, our whole story was us learning and listening and hearing because there are so many different sides, as, as, as you know, Michael, and you've done so much work in your interviews over the years that have helped to um, build understanding, which is so necessary now, coming into periods when people are talking about border poles and mm. all of that. I mean, we've got to build understanding and we've got to have to understand you know, the different experiences and aspirations and traditions and have build in respect for all of that. Okay. So with us, it's been, you know, we're just so grateful for the people who joined us on our journey. And it very much was a team of ours in the peace group, a committee that kind of held together and were very resolute and really had no resources from the very beginning, but then got help from the Department of Foreign Affairs so that we could... Um, you know, hire rooms and, and, and run, bring down people for workshops and schools. And that was very, very welcome. But it was always a voluntary effort. And very much the work was done by ordinary people from Meath and Louth coming along and asking questions and engaging with people at these meetings, which we hope will happen next Saturday again. Indeed. Always uh, a fascinating uh, time to sit in Dalgan Park through the seminars. This looks particularly good, uh, I think, uh, Ulita. That's uh, tomorrow week, the 14th of October. Uh, and as you say, tickets uh, available through Eventbrite. If people have a, a problem getting tickets, uh, they can uh, contact us and uh, we can give them other details uh, for that matter. But thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you indeed, Julita Clancy. Now, uh, that's uh, on Saturday week. Uh, just a, a comment coming to us, uh, giving us a, a correction uh, and thank you to the listener. Uh, I said I wasn't uh, aware of uh, that uh, electric bus uh, in Venice. Uh, our caller says it, uh, it uh, was diesel fuelled uh, and the driver uh, may have become ill, uh, which I think we all heard. Then the bus drove through a barrier and fell onto a railway line, which was powered by overhead electric wires. Thank you indeed uh, for that correction. Our telephone number, by the way, 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. 
Now, a group of health service workers are about to start an indefinite strike. This is to begin on the 17th of October and will have a very serious impact on service users. Now, without meaning to confuse you, what we're talking about here is Section 39, Section 10 and Section 56 workers. It's an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday by Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Louise, and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, they're how these workers are categorised, uh, but maybe you'd uh, explain who they are and who they work for. So we're talking about organisations like the Daughters of Charity, the Irish Wheelchair Association, Enable Ireland. Um, they're so, they deliver services really hand in glove with the HSE. It's very hard for an, an awful lot of people to tell the difference. I mean, they don't know the details of the person's contract, so it's very hard to tell the difference between these workers and the HSE. They have direct comparators in the public service. And just by way of information for the listeners, it's going back to 2008. They always had a link with the workers in the public service. So when there was any pay movement, they would have they would have experienced that. They had their pay cut. Mm. Um, as everybody did, uh, as all public oh, service. No, this this, this no, was the... No difference. It was called the FEMPI legislation. People will That's remember right. that from 2008. Uh, but, yeah. but pay was restored, uh, wasn't it? Not for them. And this is the issue. So the, the FEMPI, it's the Financial Emergency Measures in the Public Interest legislation brought in by, uh, by Fianna Fáil and, and then reenacted again by, by uh, Fine Gael and, and the Labour Party. That was the thing that was used to cut the pay of, of serving civil and public servants. And what they did then was they cut the grant to and the, the funding for these organisations. The pay was cut. But then when it came to pay restoration, public servants started pay restoration uh, several years ago. But these organisations weren't included in that. So the result of this has been that they have fallen even further behind. There's a difference of uh, over 10% in some cases with their direct comparator in the HSE. And what's happening is there's a recruitment and retention crisis purely and simply because they can go to the HSE, they can do the same job in the HSE and they get more money for it. Plus they have access to the public service pension and and, and other benefits. And, you know, it's the services that are delivered here, and that's the point I was trying to make to the Tarnishty yesterday, was that there has to be contingency arrangements. The workers don't want to go on strike. I am yeah. very hopeful that the strike will be averted, but if it's not, mm. these are vital services. They're not an optional extra. We're talking about day services, we're talking yeah. about respite, we're talking about the um, the CDNT, the, the, the mm. teams that are operating for uh, for children in schools. Like it, It's huge. And okay, I but ju- ju- just, just ju- to make it simple for me, are, are you talking, for example, about a, a nurse uh, who could be working, uh, providing health services uh, in one area uh, who gets paid 10% less than working uh, providing public health services in another area? Right. Nurses, now, occupational therapists, healthcare assistants, you know, these are the yeah. kind of grades that we're, that we're talking about. Why is that the case? Uh, 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 and the reason I'm asking you that is because when you brought this up in the doll yesterday, the Tarnish just said uh, it's complex or more complex for this set of workers. It, it's not, though. Um, I mean, it's not when you have a direct comparator in the, in the HSE. And look, it, it is fairly simple. The, everybody had their pay cut but these group of workers were not included in the pay restoration. I mean, I, like that, that, at the back of it, that's what's, that's what's going on here. And because there have been several pay claims within the public service, their pay has increased. 
while the pay of the Section 39 workers has remained static. So they're falling further and further behind all of the time where they used to have a direct link. They don't have that direct link anymore and they didn't experience the pay restoration. So every time there's a pay rise in the public service, they fall even further behind them. Mm. I mean, they're not, you know, like we have a cost of living crisis as well and that's going to impact on, on them. And like I, I was in a service recently chatting to, I, I met the workers and I, I met uh, management and I, uh, I was talking to the managers and they were saying that they're losing workers into retail and into other areas simply because they can get that they can make more money, and it's not that they're not committed to their work; they really are. But we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Like people have to look at their bottom line, and, and you know they need to be able to feed their feed their families and pay their rent. And you know they are they are leaving, and that's leaving the services very vulnerable. So, like if you're if you're a family, and this is the point I was trying to make yeah. to the Tanish yesterday, that say you might have a, a slot for respite in the week beginning the the seventeenth of October. They're asking the question now, legitimately, like what is going to happen? So what I was putting to the Tanish yesterday was in in the absence of an effort, a real effort being made to resolve the dispute and, and avert the strike, well, then they need to have contingency in place. And, and that's down to the HSE uh, or other agencies to provide that. But he didn't He didn't seem to have a plan. And that was, I, I found that quite worrying now, I'll be honest with you. OK, Mike. well, he did say that uh, the uh, talks are ongoing uh, and he hoped that there'd be a, a resolution. We might actually hear a little bit of what Hall Martin had to say. In, in, in the context of use, use of the word hope, I believe it can be resolved. I believe that this issue can be resolved. Um, and the Department of Children officials have, as recently as Tuesday, engaged with the trade unions on, 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 on the issue. And there will be further engagement next week. Uh, Minister O'Gorman uh, has informed me of that. And then Minister Rabbit um, uh, is, is very strongly over this. Um, and. As far as I'm concerned, you know, this is a priority issue that we need to resolve. Michael Martin, a priority issue, and it certainly should be, because we're talking about thousands of healthcare workers uh, who are obviously uh, uh, feeling very hard done by, because it is so unusual that you would be talking about an indefinite strike action, which is to take place from the 17th of October. Uh, And of course, this follows ballots by members of FORSA, the INMO uh, and SIPTU. and they uh, are obviously uh, looking for something to be done. But the Tanisha told you yesterday uh, that offers were made, uh, that were in line with uh, offers that were accepted by community and voluntary staff. And uh, to be honest with you now, Michael, that was a bit disingenuous of him to put that on the table because he knows a number of things. Number one, uh, the man is long enough in politics to know that there is no direct comparator between these workers and uh, the workers that he was referring to. And number two, um, he knows that that offer was rejected and rejected out of hand by the unions. And, you know, what I had looked for yesterday was that they send a full team into the negotiating table. So that would be officials, senior officials from the Department of, of Children, from the Department of Health and from the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. They're the three key players that need to be in the room so that a negotiation can happen. But my understanding is that, uh, that when the talks broke down, it was when the officials arrived in and said, this is the offer, no negotiation, um, take it or leave it. And the, the unions knew their, their members were not going to accept that. That was nowhere near what they wanted. And, you know, there, there wasn't even, uh, there wasn't any point in, in having further discussions. But, like, I can tell you, because I'm, I, I know many of the people who were involved in these negotiations, they have put their heart and soul into avoiding a strike. They have really kept faith with the process when, you know, they possibly would have been uh, would have been right to have their doubts about it. 
but they have stuck with the process right to the end. Strike is literally the very, very, very last resort and it's not where they want to be at all. And what I'm hearing from the workers is they want the strike averted because they want to be able to just get back to doing their jobs. But the pressure that they're under because of the recruitment and retention crisis is, you know, it's very, very acute mm. now. And also there's a level of unfairness in it. Like they're looking at their direct comparators in the HSE who are earning more money than they ha- than, than they are earning. And they're asking themselves, well, why am I doing this job? A job that they love and are, the jobs that they're very good at, but they're, they're doing it day in and day out for less money, the mm. same job. I mean, it's not fair and it's not right. And they've put up with it for years. I mean, remember, mm. you know, this is... The, the, the That's the point, I, I, I think... Start, I, you know, I, a couple of weeks ago, like, they're going on years and they've kept faith with the process. Yeah, well, I, I'm, sure the negotiators would, I'm sure the negotiators wouldn't be uh, too surprised if staff asked uh, for them to look for money backdated at this stage. Well, I mean, again, you have to be with people who have the capacity to negotiate, and that means the full team going down to the WRC. That means officials from the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, from the Department of Health and from the Department of Children. Senior officials with decision-making capabilities need to be sitting in the room to be able to negotiate. But it's not fair to simply walk in and say, well, this is the offer and there's no negotiation on it. That's not the purpose of this. Like The, the talks are going on a long time. And, uh, you know, to end with, well, this is an offer now and, and you know, take it or leave. I think that was very unfair. Now, I, I really do welcome the fact that talks have, uh, have restarted. I think that's very positive. But unless we have the senior decision makers at the table, there isn't going to be a resolution. And I'm acutely conscious of the fact that the 17th of October is coming down the track very, very quickly. So the time is running out for a resolution of this dispute. And the families are asking the question, which is the one I put to the Tonishty yesterday, what is the contingent, What are the contingency arrangements in the event that this strike goes ahead? And he didn't have an answer from me on that, unfortunately. His answer was he believes it can be resolved. I believe it can be resolved as well but only when the senior decision-makers are going to come down to the WRC and actually uh, negotiate uh, an offer that's going to be acceptable to the unions. OK. We leave it there. Thank you indeed, Louise. And we hope that there will be a resolution uh, before the 17th because that is the date set in stone as things stand for an indefinite strike which would have a very, very serious impact on many, many vulnerable people. Our thanks uh, to Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly there. Michael. Basics, nutritional support, transportation, healthcare, leisure, clothing, medicines, toiletries, transportation, nappies, wipes, school lunches, all very basic things. Uh, Here's an interesting statistic, though, for you. Uh, If you include things like food and healthcare, 80% of people saying that they don't have uh, enough money to cover the cost of their children's basic needs. That's the experience of parents living in direct provision, uh, according to research that was carried out on behalf of uh, the Irish Refugee Council by, uh, funded by the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Let's speak to Nick Henderson, who's CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. And a very good morning to you, Nick, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you wrote an article about this in the Irish Times uh, this week under the title of uh, Child Benefit is Universal except for those it excludes and you're calling for child benefit to be made available to families who have children living in direct provision. Yeah, that's our big call to the government uh, for the budget that will take place next Tuesday. Child benefit is a universal payment paid to nearly every child in the state 
apart from children living in direct provision. Uh, and fundamentally, we think that's wrong, that a group of children who are living here, maybe being educated here, uh, and attempting to build their lives here are specifically included, include, excluded from that payment. So it's our big call to the government that this can be changed. They can uh, introduce child benefit or, or an equivalent payment if necessary, uh, that would support children uh, while they wait for their asylum claim to be decided. It may not solve all the problems that face our asylum process that we've spoken about before, Michael, mm. but it would uh, provide a basic floor of support and it would support parents uh, in providing for their children particularly around those things that you just mentioned at the top of the story, around uh, transport, uh, hobbies, activities, nutritional support and so on. We, we, we know that we don't cherish all of the children equally in this country, uh, but uh, we would have been under the impression that child benefit was a, a universal payment, whether it goes to Michael o- O'Leary or Ryan Tuberty or some of the wealthiest people I- in this country. Uh, but uh, for some reason, uh, children in direct provision are excluded, uh, as you very uh, well put it in that headline. Uh, it's paid to people coming here from the Ukraine, uh, so yeah. it, it wouldn't be unusual. But put it into context, uh, because you say uh, their income shortfall is about 50% of what it should be. Yeah, that's a research undertaken by St. Vincent de Paul in the spring, which looked at uh, using what's called the minimum standard of living methodology, which looks at what somebody should be providing to their children and then compares that to what, in fact, children and families in direct provision were receiving. So that research was published in the spring and that provided that, that figure. And then, building on that research, we commissioned uh, this research which surveyed families living in direct provision and then did nine focus groups over the summer in different parts of the country. And that brought out further detail uh, and explored this area further. Uh, 80% of respondents indicating that the, the support that they do receive is insufficient to cover, cover many of their basic children's basic needs. Uh, 50% of respondents saying that children, um, they're using their expenses to provide for their care for their children and let's remember that the daily expenses allowance which is the financial amount given to people living in direct provision is 38 euro per week for adults 29 for children that's to be spent on non-basic needs issues the, the, the fundamental point here is that the state should be providing where people cannot provide for it for themselves who are seeking asylum in, in Ireland that the state provide for people's basic needs and the DEA is a supplementary payment. What our mm-hmm. research found is that the DEA, the daily expenses allowance, is increasingly being used to pay for those things such as food, transport, sanitary items, mm-hmm. hygiene and in some cases medical support. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and these are people living in our, our communities uh, and certainly living in our school communities. Uh, the children in direct provision will be going to school with children uh, who were born here or whatever uh, way you want to put that, uh, but who, whose families are in receipt of uh, child benefit. It, it must feel psychologically to those children as though they're living in a parallel universe. Yeah, and some of the, the really hard-hitting stuff in the focus groups uh, 
uh, spoke to that exactly. Things like mum saying that over the summer they didn't know what to do. They couldn't take their children out because there was nothing that they could have bought. Uh, they can't um, engage their or support their children to engage in after-school activities uh, because they cannot afford it. Uh, a lot of trepidation about walking to school, parents having to walk quite long distances because they can't afford uh, the, the school transport. Um, parents not being able to receive children back on playdates, exchange playdates, for so forth. So that stuff really mm. goes to the heart of what it is to be a child in Ireland uh, and, uh, and that this research... Uh, based on the focus groups, based on the survey shows that people are, as you say, being marginalised. They're already marginalised, yeah. but mm. this is compound, compounding it further. Yeah, and that kind of marginalisation can lead to cruelty and uh, when there's differences between children, children being children, um, and I, I, I'm sure that it, it's not through badness, but I mean, we've all seen is uh, that somebody will be uh, singled out because they're different. Uh, is that the experience? Yeah, I think one thing that we've found in our work over the years is that schools have always, nearly always, done their very best to welcome kids of all backgrounds, including kids living in direct provision. And that school is actually sort of a, a, a sanctuary uh, and a place of enjoyment for kids. But it is around things like getting to school, uh, paying for, 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 for products uh, like books, or uh, uh, uniforms, mm. and then after-school activities. That's where the, 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 the division could occur. Um, but schools all over the country now are doing their very best. It's not an issue necessarily at all with the schools. It's just that peripheral support that ensures uh, that children can, 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 can enjoy their, their time and be educated in, 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 with their peers. Mm. And, and no child wants to feel different uh, but it, yeah. if you're looking at other children doing what they believe are basic things uh, and they appear to you to be very wealthy because they could afford to do those basic things there's a huge difference Yeah exactly uh, and you know no, that's what we try to bring to life with, the, with this research is to put ourselves in the, in the, in the shoes of a, a mother or a father mm. or indeed a child um, to, you know, particularly over the summer. Summers are, are, can be great opportunities for kids to get out and do the things that that they can't do during the school year. Camps, maybe a trip uh, to the to, to the seaside, or you know, possibly further. But that that through this research, you know, mums felt and fathers felt that they just couldn't do that. They couldn't afford to. To make that step now, child benefit, which is what we're calling for, an equivalent, it's not going to solve all these issues necessarily. We're not saying that, but it mm. would be a basic floor of support that a parent could say, "Okay, we have this. We, could, we know this is coming in, and we can dedicate that to, to a particular activity or a particular support or, or um, an excursion, for example." Um, child benefit was paid to, to kids living in direct provision, I think up until sometime in the 2000s, but then they introduced, the government introduced the habitual residence test uh, rule, which excluded kids from direct, kids living in direct provision from it on the grounds that their future in Ireland was unclear and they hadn't lived here long enough. Kids from Ukraine rightfully receive it. Um, 
so that argument doesn't really make sense and that's one of the things one of the points we made in the op-ed in the Irish Times yesterday and we were to end direct provision uh, I think that ambition has probably been parked uh, because of the war in Ukraine and uh, the pressure that has been put on because of the additional number of uh, people seeking international protection as well possibly as a knock-on effect of that uh, but that was under that white paper and you made that point in your op-ed yesterday as well that under yeah. that white paper uh, child benefit was to be paid to children in direct provision. Yeah, exactly. It was one of the big commitments in that white paper. Uh, it, child benefit or an equivalent payment, I think the phrase equivalent payment was used to circumvent the point around habitual residence tests, so it would be a payment that is equivalent to child benefit but not calling it that. Uh, and that's that's why we think this budget is so important. It's, this is unrelated to accommodation as well. So it's nothing to do with accommodation. We all know those accommodation problems. As you say, the, the commitment to end direct provision seems pretty remote at the moment. And I, I think the government, government has said that, the minister said that, and we acknowledge that to an extent how that's possible in this current environment seems unlikely. So that makes it all the more important particularly in the context, and we make this point in the, in the op-ed and the press release around a sort of perfect storm around deteriorating standards, increasing isolation, a cost of living uh, which crisis which is affecting everybody. Um, that's why it's so important to provide that basic level of support mm. through child benefit. And it wouldn't cost that much. This is the big thing. You know, we're, we, in June, we, the government spent, I think, something like $300 million on that €100 Euro child benefit top-up. Our sums on this are that it would cost around five to six million, which in the grand scheme of things is nothing. Okay, can I just ask you about the comments the Taoiseach uh, made yesterday in Grenada uh, and Mm. uh, this uh, European Union uh, agreement uh, and either you accept asylum seekers or you pay uh, and it looks like Ireland may pay rather than accept migrants. Uh, What do you make of that? Yeah, the first thing to say there is that Ireland has not yet opted into this uh, European Union law. Uh, I looked at the draft that was published by the European Union Council yesterday, and it give, it still has the two options of whether Ireland opts in or opts out. And that opt-in to, to European Union law, particularly around things like asylum, it is something we've had for some time, uh, and it flows from our, our proximity and our relationship with the UK and the common travel area. So it's not guaranteed that Ireland will opt into this. And then if it does, then as you say, it has these three options. You either take people from places like Italy or you pay uh, or you handle their asylum claim. And I think they would remain in the country. I'm not sure how that would work in practice. The government did the same thing in in June. They paid an amount uh, uh, into the voluntary solidarity mechanism. Our reaction then, and it's the same today, would be as, as one of dismay that we're thinking of, of, of paying rather than taking what would probably be a very small group of people because they are distributed across the European Union. And it also highlights the precarity of European solidarity. If Ireland, a country pretty wealthy comparatively, is thinking immediately, so if our first reaction is that we would pay our way out of this rather than contributing to European solidarity, and that's in the context of those southern Mediterranean countries under real pressure and being quite 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 direct in, in the support that they need. So it's of dismay to us that that's the first reaction, but there's still quite a long way to go. Uh, and, and it probably will be next year 
uh, I think before the European Parliament elections that this regulation will be uh, be finally approved because they have to bring it now to the Parliament to okay. negotiate. Nick, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Nick Henderson is uh, the CEO of uh, the Irish Refugee Council. Now, uh, we'll turn our attention to a uh, local issue. Uh, Tarnished, uh, unfortunately... Unfortunately, the situation at Bolleton Tara Mines has not changed since the decision was made to enter into care and maintenance in June of this year. About 650 workers were temporarily laid off by management, and the duration of those temporary layoffs is undetermined at present. I want to ask you if the government have been engaging with the management of Tara Mines to ensure it does all in its power to get the mines reopened as soon as possible and get a date for this. Uh, healthcare premiums covered by the company until the 31st of this month uh, are running out. Uh, a weekly support payment of €65 Euro by Bolleton and Tara Mines also. And there is a meeting with the unions on the 12th of October where these issues will be discussed and reviewed. Could I ask the government to talk to management before the 12th of October and see if they can offer their support to the workers and the families that we can keep these benefits going? Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Gurk. The government is very much committed to helping the workers and supporting the workers within the frameworks that, that, that are available, and we will continue to do that, and obviously to see what we can do uh, working with the owners to get the mines operational again. Uh, the international context was not conducive to it at the time of the decision taken um, to, to ha- have it at a care and maintenance level, but the um, government will remain engaged on the issue. All right, uh, important date uh, in October the 12th uh, there for workers in Tara Mines. That's the uh, Tanisha Michal Martin responding in the Dáil yesterday to local Sinn Féin TD Johnny Gurk. Call Michael now, 041-983-2000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity, when and where they need it. Join us every...